If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. Tomorrow, the 16th of August, is the 200th anniversary of the Peterloo Massacre which is the subject of today's podcast. Our acting section editor, John Balkham, met the historian Robert Poole, who's the author of a new book on Peterloo, to discuss how the massacre fit into a wider pro-democracy movement that was calling for radical change. So, Robert, this summer marks exactly 200 years since the Peterloo Massacre. And as part of the bicentenary, we've seen a lot of talks and events and exhibitions taking place across the Greater Manchester area. Last year, of course, we also saw the release of Mike Lee's feature film, Peterloo. But perhaps for those listeners who aren't as familiar with the Peterloo Massacre, could you begin by briefly summarising what it was that happened at St Peter's Field on the 16th of August 1819? Yes, St Peter's Field is in now the centre of Manchester, then on the edge of Manchester. And what happened, there was a massive rally of pro-democracy reformers, radical reformers who wanted what we would call manhood suffrage what they would call universal suffrage. Uh, They rallied to hear Henry Hunt speak about reform, but the rally was forcibly broken up by the local magistrates using particularly the local volunteer yeomanry cavalry, special constables and regular troops. And it took place four years after the Battle of Waterloo, when Allied troops had had finally defeated Napoleon. And so the episode on St. Peter's Field was very quickly bitterly known as Peterloo, the time when British troops had been turned on their own citizens. So, I mean, going back and looking at the chain of events directly leading up to 1819, what sort of state was Britain in at the turn of the 19th century? What grievances did people have? Well, the the wars against revolutionary and then Napoleonic France had involved virtually the whole of of Europe. And they'd gone on for a total of 22 years, which if you add the First and the Second World Wars together and double it and then add some more, that gives you how long it was. And after 1805 and the naval battle of Trafalgar, Britain had had control of the seas, but equally um, after, um, after the same year, Napoleon and the French and their allies had had control of the land. So there was a terrible 10-year stalemate. And it was this 
terrible grinding phase of the war, which brought terrific poverty, catastrophe to the industrial districts, the Luddite uprisings of 1812, near famine conditions, an immense unrest. And Lancashire had been one of the more patriotic areas of the country, certainly amongst the industrial areas. There'd been a great deal of popular enthusiasm for defending Britain against uh, possible French invasion. But really, by, by 1812 and the late years of the war, the mass of the people had really were almost unable physically to cope with any more. So although there were a lot of issues, industrial issues, pay issues, the high price of food, the corn laws brought in or continued after the war even even worse, which kept the price of uh, corn and therefore flour and bread artificially high. Um, although many of these were economic grievances, um, in the end, what the reformers decided was that none of these could be solved without working people having the vote because whatever you wanted wanted to do parliament was not going to vote in favor it this was an era of tremendous belief in authority property circles in free trade uh, which is, didn't sit terribly well with the sort of fairly authoritarian uh, political views of the dominant conservatism at the time. But that's how it was. And working people had very few economic protections, all the old paternalistic protections, uh, wage controls, price controls, uh, controls on, on, on labour and so on, had all, been, had all been dissolved by 1814. And working people after the wars were exposed to the post-war slump for the continuation of wartime ta- in, indirect taxation and the Corn Laws. And by pretty much every measure of equality, the post-war years were one of the most unequal periods in British history. They were definitely the, the bottom of the Industrial Revolution as far as living standards were concerned, and possibly the most unequal period in, in British history between uh, the Norman Conquest and the present day. And talking about Manchester specifically, the radical Manchester Observer itself claimed that it was a town of which the very name has been synonymous with the grossest corruption. Um, What was the state of local politics uh, during the Regency period? Hmm. Well, with Manchester people naturally go back to the Manchester of Friedrich Engels and his book The Condition of the Working Class in England, which was written in 1844. But of course, Manchester was expanding and changing massively. And in 1819, we're 25 years, a full generation and more before the time of Engels. So whereas Engels is factories and steam power and railway lines, um, 1819 is very much more stagecoaches. There's a great deal more handling. Most weaving, in fact, is done by hand, although spinning's done in the factories. And Manchester in Engels's day had a local government. It had a local authority and, and quite a, a, a progressive one in, in, in many ways. But in 1819, Manchester was still, as Daniel Defoe had called it a hundred years earlier, the greatest mere village in England. That is, as far as local government institutions were concerned, it wasn't even a town. It, was, it had a modern improvement commission, uh, which was able to raise rates to, 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 to light the city and clear the streets and that kind of thing. But in effect, it was governed by its manor, its manorial court, its court leet, its manorial officers, its borough reeves and its constables. And when they paraded once a year uh, around the town, there was a whole host of ale tasters and market lookers and dog whippers and that kind of thing. Um, and also it was governed by the large parish of Manchester, which was a, a very large urban parish going right down to the, the 
the borders of the Mersey near, near Stockport, seven miles to the south. And this parish was governed by the Collegiate Church of Manchester, Collegiate, because it was governed not by a not by a single minister, but by a whole college of fellows uh, who, who were at um, what's now... Um, Cheatham School and Cheatham's Library in these ancient medieval buildings surrounding the town. So Manchester was really this rather strange Barchester Towers kind of world in local government terms. Not at all what you would expect with the most advanced industrial city on earth. So Manchester was a new city in terms of economics and industry, but a very, very old, bizarre provincial town in terms of local government. And local government was dominated by the highest of high Toryism. So Manchester was a real town of contradictions, almost living in different centuries at the same time. Uh, Manchester, it seems, politically, it's it's quite complex. But at the same time, we're getting a sense of growing discontent among ordinary working people. Prior to the Peterloo massacre in the months and years before, Uh, How were people expressing their grievances? Well, we can probably go back to the Luddite uh, uh, disturbances, perhaps the Luddite uprising of 1812, because 1811 to 12 was the absolute worst year of the Napoleonic Wars in, in economic terms. There was near starvation in much of Lancashire, handloom weaving, which was by far and away the, the, the predominant trade of the area. Probably about 40% of adult males in the Lancashire region were, you know, the, the whole region, right, 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 you know, a few miles out, were handloom weavers. That was the biggest trade. There was experiencing its absolute worst times food prices went through the roof and the the machine breaking was not just machine breaking it was also food riots and there had been a long campaign of lobbying for the end of the blockade against napoleonic france um this this sort of um mutual economic blockade in which both sides had their fingers on on the throats of the other one and were, were trying to choke the other economically to death and in fact after this the blockade was gradually lifted but 1812 was the absolute worst period but things were not a lot better in 1815 1816, 1817, because we had the terrific post-war slump. There were half a million soldiers being demobilised, many of them unemployed, many of them going into handloom weaving just at the time when the economy and handloom weaving crashed again. There were weavers on the lowest imaginable wages. Large numbers of them were earning five shillings a week, which was barely enough to buy flour to bake bread for a, for a small family, never, never mind pay the rent. And in addition to this, the, the wartime property tax, the income tax on the middle classes had been lifted. Uh, the, the landed classes and the farmers had the corn laws to protect their, the, the prices of their produce. But the, art, the taxes on the small items of consumption for working people, things like soap and salt and candles and malt for brewing beer, those were continued. And it, it's been reckoned that if you add in the effects of the corn laws, keeping the price of bread artificially high, that the very poorest working people, without, without really noticing it, were paying a quarter or perhaps even a third of their income in taxes. And working people saw this as a matter of life and death, yes, but a political problem. Because from the radical reformers' point of view, what had happened was that the uh, the wealthy and powerful classes who, who would control Britain during the Napoleonic Wars were con- effectively continuing wartime siege conditions for working people when they were no longer needed. And this was a political problem. Uh, And so there was a massive campaign in 1816 to 17 for a radical reform of parliament for all adult males to be given the vote. And it was a campaign, a national campaign to petition parliament first and foremost. It had not yet overspilled into civil disobedience. Okay, and so there's a growth in radical activity Mm. um, happening across Britain in London as well. Uh, In the book, you also mention um, some mass rallies taking place at Sparfields. Yes, 
Could you perhaps explain a bit more about those? It's probably worthwhile explaining the term radical reform because these days people associate radicalism with radicalisation and, and terrorism. It's a rather scary term. But the word radical simply means, th- means from the root, a thoroughgoing reform, something that probably all of us would approve of in some context or another. Um, So radical reformers wanted adult manhood suffrage, they wanted all adult males to have the vote. And the difference between uh, them and the ordinary Whig parliamentary reformers was for the Whigs, the problem was uh, over mighty executive government and the solution was parliament, whereas for the radicals, parliament was part of the problem and the solution was the people. So the the mass rallies at Spa Fields were only the most the, the best known single episodes in this mass campaign in late 1816, early 1817, uh, to petition Parliament for manhood suffrage. Uh, and the petition was that the campaign was strongest actually in the northwest of England, but it was also pretty strong in London, where there was a strong group of ultra radicals known as the Spencian uh, reformers, who, who didn't actually have any faith in parliamentary petitioning, but 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 wanted to go through the business to demonstrate to people that it was no use, and that much more radical mass uprising was needed. So the two Sparfields meetings in London in late 1817 were addressed by Henry Hunt, who later, of course, addressed the mass uh, uh, rally for reform in Manchester. Manchester in 1819. And they went off peacefully, although before one of them, a a small uh, splinter group of radicals went off to try and attack the Tower of London to repeat the storming of the Bastille uh, in London. But Henry Hunt only came along after that and passed resolutions demanding a reform of Parliament. And there was a mass campaign to petition Parliament for manhood suffrage. And it was coordinated nationally for the first time. And what that meant was that Major John Cartwright, a a veteran reformer going back to the uh, uh, American Wars of Independence, who'd supported the colonists uh, against the the British state, he saw the colonists as Democrats and wanted the same democracy for England. Um, Cartwright came up with the idea of having a petitioning campaign using printed petitions where the same printed sheets could be circulated everywhere in the country. People could write their names onto blank sheets of paper. They would be attached to the printed sheets and then hundreds of separate petitions would go up to Parliament for reform. The old idea was that you were supposed to send in one very expensively scribed out roll of parchment in which everybody signed their names the same. So Cartwright was a democratic innovator when it came to petitioning. And he was also a great believer that uh, once upon a time, you know, a few centuries ago, uh, all Englishmen had had the vote and that had been taken away from them, the old Norman Yoke idea. Uh, so there was a mass campaign to petition Parliament for radical reform and some of the biggest and the largest numbers of, of petitions, maybe about two thirds of all of them, came from the northern industrial districts, the, the, the Midlands, uh, Lancashire, Yorkshire and, and further north. In the book you talk about some of the tactics that the government used to try and undermine uh, so-called seditious activities. Um, how effective were spies at gathering intelligence? Mm. It's very difficult to tell how effective spies were because they are concealed and often because several of them are operating in the same meeting. And so they might actually, when they say X was said at the meeting, they might simply be reporting what another spy says. And then they might be saying there was general agreement. And what they mean to do is simply to incriminate everybody in the room in a kind of conspiracy. Sometimes the spies didn't even know that the, the people they were reporting on were spies. So historians have found it very difficult to get to the bottom of this. But certainly 1816 to 17, the local magistrates all over the Manchester region had spies in most local areas and actually had 
pretty good information, but also a lot of very exaggerated information, because, of course, the spies were paid by results. In effect, the more evidence of conspiracy they found, the, the longer they'd be kept on quite valuable retainers. So um, petitioning itself by people who, who, who essentially were not citizens was thought to be a subversive activity by the local authorities, and a number of petitions simply disappeared and people were intimidated. The petitions were carried off and destroyed and, and uh, people suffered all sorts of petty harassment for, for being involved in them. And yet the reformers argued that there was an undoubted right of citizens to petition Parliament in the last resort to have their grievances redressed. They saw this as the last-ditch rights of Englishmen. So when spies were, if you like, like betraying the secrets of, of, of meetings and blocking people's right to petition and to protest, this was the point at which people decided that government and local authorities together were in a kind of conspiracy to stop people exercising their constitutional rights. How effective the spies were? Well, after the petitioning failed in 1817, we get the attempted march of the Blanketeers, carrying blankets to, on a several days march to London to appeal directly to the Prince Regent. That was stopped by troops. You get an attempt at a further uprising in Manchester to repeat the same thing again, also blocked by troops. And there's the Folly Bridge rising near Huddersfield, the Pentridge rising over near Nottingham and Derby. All of them seem to be blocked by troops and betrayed by spies. So it's no wonder that working people decided that something rather different was needed to succeed next time. And this was the open mass platform campaign of 1819. So there were quite a number of key figures in the reform movement locally, among them being um, Samuel Bamford, who was from uh, nearby Middleton. What kind of role did he play Samuel Bamford was a handloom weaver, a very skilled handloom weaver, later went into silk handloom weaving, the most skilled branch. He was quite well educated. He spent some time at Manchester Grammar School and Middleton Grammar School. So he was highly literate and a, a thoughtful man. And he was about 30 years old, I think, round about the time of, of Peterloo. And handloom weavers were some of, some of the best educated and most committed and also most badly affected workers by the uh, economic changes of the period. Their numbers hadn't even peaked by 1890. They were still extremely common class of workers, but they were beginning to fear um, uh, that their days were numbered. So Bamford was a great writer and a radical. He was a poet and he was the secretary of the local Middleton Hamden Club. Middleton is a handloom weaving village, a very radical one in, in, in uh, about, about uh, six miles north of Manchester, right at the heart of the handloom weaving territory in the Pennine foothills um, that were also the heartland of radical reform. As the secretary Secretary to the local Hamden Club, and there were dozens of Hamden Clubs all over the country, founded by an initiative of the the, the London reformer and um, the veteran John Cartwright. Um, uh, Bamford knew everything that was going on. He had really, he, he was in charge of writing minutes of relations with the local Hamden Clubs at Royton and many surrounding towns and villages. Uh, he was also a very sober and steady man. He didn't have a great deal of faith in, in government and in ministers and so forth, um, but he always tended towards the articulate and to the constructive. And uh, he'd been involved in the event of 1817, but very sensibly he'd stayed clear of the march of the Blanketeers and was deeply suspicious, with good reason, of spies. And Bamford was one of those. Um, he'd actually been to London in, as part of the 1817 campaign. He'd met Henry Hunt. He'd seen William Henry Hunt, the great radical orator. He'd met William Cobbett, uh, the radical writer and journalist and he met John Cartwright the veteran radical organiser so he was quite well connected as well with the with the national scene and Bamford is particularly famous for his great autobiography 
Passages in the Life of a Radical, which came out about 20 years later, and which gives us this unforgettable portrait of the reform movement of these years from the inside. And in 1819, Bamford was very much in favour of a completely open mass movement. Yes, as forceful as you like in terms of numbers, rhetoric, arguments and determination. But Bamford strongly believed that people should not conspire they should not do anything in secret and what they should do they should do it openly as would-be citizens as members of communities as husbands and indeed as, as as wives and as families bamford's vision of the radical rallies was of communities of citizens on the march demonstrating he said that they knew their rights as englishmen and were willing to demonstrate that they knew as englishmen how to assert those rights as citizens Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's not always going to be the successful solution in the short term, but in the long term, democracy can make all sorts of things possible. Without democracy, we probably won't be successful, but with democracy, we certainly can be. And democracy can always be deepened and extended and will continue to change and develop. I think that's the lesson of Peterloo. Just stick at it. So let's go to August Uh, 1819 Mm. itself. How do we arrive at this meeting being organised? How do we arrive at Henry Hunt being invited to speak? Well, Henry Hunt was 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 a landowner um, in in the southwest of England, um, uh, focusing on Bristol. He'd actually been um, a, a local officer in the local county volunteer force, and it had been a patriot against the the threat of a Napoleonic invasion. But it had fallen out, had been blackballed by his rival landowners, who didn't think that he was uh, made of the right social stuff to command yeomanry cavalry. He was quite a an abrasive, prickly figure, Henry Hunt. But you needed somebody like Henry Hunt to to, to front a podium democracy movement. He was probably the only person whose voice under favourable conditions could reach the back of a large meeting of the sort of 50,000 odd who who turned up at St Peter's Fields. So uh, Henry Hunt was the orator for the radical movement. William Cobbett was the journalist and Cartwright was the organiser. So when the the Manchester radicals um, invited Henry Hunt to Manchester, they knew that they were inviting the top man, the man who was well known and who would draw massive crowds, um, who'd quite recently stood, in fact, as, uh, to be an MP for, for Westminster, one of the most open, uh, radical, pro-radical constituencies in the country. He was a national figure, and to have him up in Manchester, where the great numbers for radical reform were, um, was really going to combine the two great strengths of the movement. There was tremendous anticipation of his visit. How did all these campaigners arrive at St Petersfield? Well, thanks to Samuel Bamford and others like him, the great feature of the Peterloo rally was that people marched in from all over the region, um, right out to cotton towns in the surrounding uh, areas, places places like um, Bolton, uh, Bury, Rochdale, Oldham. Ashton, Underline, Stockport, and many of the smaller towns and villages in between. Uh, routes passed through the whole of the weaving districts surrounding Manchester, which were the heartland of the radical movement. And they marched in organised groups. They'd been, in fact, uh, they'd been drilling and practising marching in, in, in on Sundays, the weeks be- and evenings, the, the summer evenings, the weeks beforehand, um, in order to march in good order. Or as the authorities saw it, they were practising for a military descent on Manchester, if not on the day then. 
then soon after. And they marched in in fantastic good order with, with many women. It's been reckoned about one in nine of, of those who arrived in Manchester were women and some children. It was almost a festive occasion. Some observers, it looked like a festive day out. And uh, there were strong instructions to carry no weapons whatsoever. And even all but the oldest people left their walking sticks at home, whereas it would have been quite normal to walk into Manchester uh, with walking sticks. So about half the crowd uh, in, in the field on the day, maybe 20,000 odd people had come in from outside. Another 20,000 or so probably came from Manchester. And there were many thousands of people there spectating. So probably about a crowd of 50,000 altogether. But although it was peaceful, the sheer numbers and the deafening noise that they made when Henry Hunt approached really put the wind up the authorities. The authorities simply did not believe that a large crowd that wasn't bound together by loyalty to any legitimate authority could be anything other than a rioting mob. They were convinced that if Henry Hunt addressed this, a crowd like this and, and excited it, that it would be like throwing a lighted match into a dry cornfield in, in summer. The only result could be a riot. And so they wanted to arrest Henry Hunt to prevent this from happening. They did not believe uh, that the crowd would allow Henry Hunt to go quietly, although Henry Hunt, that's exactly what Hunt did and what he always said he would do. Um, and uh, so they called in troops in support, the Manchester and Salford Yeomanry Cavalry and the Cheshire Yeomanry and the regular Hussars, supported by volunteer special constables. So what happens next? Well, what happens is that the... Uh the, the chairman of the magistrates, uh, William Holton, uh, does not believe that he can arrest Henry Hunt without military support. So he sends messages both to the regular cavalry, Waterloo veterans, the 15th Hussars, very professional, very competent, and to the volunteer Manchester and Yeomanry cavalry who've only been in existence for two years. They're small shopkeepers, they're small manufacturers, uh, publicans, and they're all ultra-loyalists with a real a huge hostility to working class movements and a great feeling that this is really their territory that's being trampled on by these plebs from outside. Uh, they come, they arrive first because they're nearest and without very much further ceremony, they simply canter and then trot into, into the crowd with the civil officers trying to keep up. The captain of the yeomanry tries to arrest Henry Hunt at the point of a sword. Henry Hunt retrieves the situation by saying, well, I'll, I'll, I'll not surrender to, to a military officer, but I'll be happy to surrender to any civil officer. He goes quietly and all would have been fine, except that the Manchester cavalry, yeomanry cavalry, then attack the hustings. They attack the flags and the banners. They smash them up. They, they seize them as prizes and trophies. They carry them off. Uh, they refer to the workers as the enemy, to the reformers as the enemy. The Cheshire yeomanry then come along a little bit later on because they had further to come and the regular cavalry and the the regular commander of the regular cavalry goes up to the magistrates and say, says, what are your orders? And uh, the chairman of the magistrates simply says, can't you see they're attacking the yeomanry? Disperse the mob. And the hussars make the catastrophic decision uh, on a field where people are already panicking in all directions and crushing up against the few available exits. They make the catastrophic decision to do a cavalry charge right across the field to sweep it clear. And that is what accounts for a large numbers of the casualties. And in total, how many people uh, lost their lives on that day? Uh, well, there's new research coming up all the time, but we think that the, the most likely figure is there are 18 people that, that are likely to, uh, we either know or are very likely to have died as a result of injuries received on the field. Uh, and uh, another nearly 700 were seriously injured. And we have we have lists of those who were seriously injured because there was a relief committee formed for, in Manchester and London uh, who collected all the details they could of those who were relieved. And we also have lists of those who had hospital treatment and, and so on. So although in terms of 
you know, in terms of body count, you know, 18 bodies for a massacre seems like a very English massacre, a very small massacre. Um, in fact, for nearly 700 people to be seriously injured, many of them quite deliberately person to person, face to face over about 15 minutes. I think the sustained ferocity of that qualifies it as a massacre. And what was the immediate aftermath? What went on later on in that day and in the days that followed? That day, the authorities sent troops to do some very aggressive patrolling in the northern quarter of Manchester, which was where many handloom weavers, uh, many Irish migrants worked there. It was, a, it was a working quarter. And it was it was Manchester's trouble spot. They did not believe it would stay peaceful. And, of course, this patrolling provoked riots. The troops then opened fire. And quite a lot of the casualties, we, we'll never know how many, um, uh, were actually in, in those evening riots but it's quite clear they were provoked by the by the patrolling by 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 the troops um uh, that all calmed down fairly quickly. The riots in some other places, in, in Macclesfield as well. Um, but the, the 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 shock at what had happened, the, this vast peaceful gathering that had bent over backwards to demonstrate how peaceful it was, had been attacked without provocation by, by troops under the command of the local magistrates with the tacit support of government, caused national shock and outrage. And the government... Despite all their efforts, they lost the propaganda war very quickly. Uh, the word Peterloo stuck. And these famous images drawn by Cruikshank of female reformers being trampled by aggressive cavalry completely changed the, 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 the whole language surrounding this. Uh, so it was a massive propaganda defeat for the government. Uh, and it polarised Britain. If you were a Tory, a high Tory, you believe that a revolution had been averted. But most of the middle classes and the working classes believed together that the authorities had gone much too far. And there were, in fact, between um, between Peterloo and the end of the year, there were probably twice as many mass rallies in protest against Peterloo as there had been in the campaign leading up to Peterloo. Uh, but because the focus was protest rather than directly for reform, it wasn't really going anywhere. And in the end, the government managed to pass six acts uh, which banned public meetings, public processions, and, and rigged the law against, against the reformers. And it was another 12 years, it was 1832, before uh, any kind of parliamentary reform was again possible. But I think actually, although 1832 and then there was a series of incremental reform acts which resulted in manhood suffrage within 99 years, I don't think that that um, process would have been so gradual and so successful had it not been for the tremendous shock of Peterloo. Because in 1832, when, when the House of Lords once, twice, rejected reform bills which had been passed by the Commons and then had to decide whether to block reform a third time with the whole country apparently up in arms. In the end, the government knew it did not dare send in the troops. It couldn't risk another Peterloo. The Lords backed down and the Great Reform Act was passed. So Britain's history of incremental peaceful reform actually has the shock of Peterloo as its uh, mo original motor behind it. Do you feel that there is a, a growing appetite from people to learn more about this part of history? I've witnessed it. I mean, almost every day in, in recent months. It's absolutely astonishing the level of interest in Peterloo uh, for various reasons. I mean, partly because it's a national thing that happens in Manchester and so people are interested in it uh, because people feel that it's not been well enough known or perhaps has been covered up because it hasn't been very well memorialised, although that will change in, in, in August uh, 2019. Uh, and also, I suppose, um, 
because the, the interest is because we know of so many people who are at Peterloo in different capacities. We have over 400 eyewitness accounts. And uh, only quite recently, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I discovered them because I didn't really. They were sitting in printed volumes that hadn't been looked at for 200 years. But we actually have 70 petitions which have never been cited before by individuals who, who were injured at Peterloo who petitioned Parliament for compensation in, in 1821. So we have over 400 eyewitness accounts of what happened at Peterloo just on the field, never mind the events before and afterwards. We also know the names of nearly 1,500 people who were there. There were over 600 people, nearly 700, who were seriously injured, um, uh, 18 of whom were killed. We know the names of uh, nearly 100 of the Manchester Yeomanry Cavalry and a number of the regular cavalry. We know the names of 300 special constables and dozens of other people who were witnesses to what happened at Peterloo. Now, if you had that volume of names and addresses and occupations about anything at all, just supposing they were victims of a pit disaster or a theatre fire or a stadium disaster, that would be interesting for social history. But the fact that something of national importance was going on and a huge clash you know, be- between uh, working people and, and the authorities in Manchester um, makes it the best documented crowd event of the 19th century and I think um, interest in it is in fact only only likely to grow uh, partly because of the change in perspective as well of seeing it as, as a pro-democracy event and something of national importance. Um, you mentioned eyewitness accounts there mm. um, you've also co-authored a graphic novel um, I mean that must have been quite a departure from the sorts of projects that historians might typically work on could you tell me a bit about how that came together? Well, it came together because there's a group called the Peterloo Memorial Campaign, which I'm a member of, and and two of the other core members of it um, are both artists. um, And uh, they've been wanting for a long time to do thinking about a graphic novel on Peterloo. And we got talking about it and they decided we would collaborate. I'd done a lot of the research, so I passed them my material as I was writing it. And um, they produce visual material without us really needing to write anything at all. There are just so many tremendous, compelling visual scenes um, uh, that politics the artist was producing uh, visual images of it before we had any any story at all and we were sitting around deciding how to do it and how we write the story and we just realized that there was actually no need the story had already been written and there were so many words so many eyewitness accounts from the peer that we didn't actually need to write any words at all so you have this rather odd thing people don't expect to people expect that a graphic novel will be fictionalized even if it's dealing with factual events that it'll still be a fictionalized account um but in this case uh, Almost all of the words used in the graphic novel um, for the speech bubbles and for the, for the panels, nearly all of them were words that were written or spoken at the time. And so the graphic novel is visually, we, we hope, authentic, but the words are extremely a- authentic. And I think that defeats expectations. And it also makes it quite a, a compelling thing to present because I mean, there's, there's one, one panel that, that Polyp drew that I particularly like, which is a picture of the female reformers. Now, the female reformers processed to St. Peter's Fields and they were, uh, I should have mentioned before, but they were, they were fiercely attacked. They were more likely to be injured than the men and they were more likely to be sabred because female reformers were, were the object of particular prejudice 
and hostility. And they were there on the platform, you know, defending the flags and colours uh, with their own bodies, so they imagined. Um, and so Pollock drew this picture of the female reformers, showing them, you know, not as the sort of French revolutionary harridans and, and, and witches and hags that they were in, in loyalist propaganda, not as the saint-like uh, feminine heroines that you might imagine, but just as ordinary people dressed in their second best clothes and bonnets and so on, marching as best they could into Manchester. And surrounding that image, you have their own words, telling their man folk, exhorting them to stand by the flag for the sake of their families and don't give an inch. Uh, we have journalists simply describing and commenting what happened uh, and then we have the loyalist voices with these mocking mocking uh, rhymes about how Hunt's mistress went to went to march and got her got her face shaved on the on the field of Peterloo which is really quite sinister and, uh, and ominous so you can show one image but you can have a lot of con conflicting voices around it it's really a graphic novel is really really good to do ambiguity and historical accuracy and I hope it's also a, a picture-driven, an image-driven graphic novel. It's not been written by a historian and then illustrated. It's been conceived by illustrators and contributed to by a historian. How would you like future generations to remember Peterloo? As a pro-democracy movement, as a national movement which was centred on Manchester as the first big provincial political meeting which really commanded um, national support or national attention. And I think as a, as a pro-democracy movement, which failed initially because there was severe repression, the six acts, legal restrictions afterwards, but which in the long term was successful, manhood suffrage was thought to be something by the authorities, something completely ridiculous, outlandish, seditious, subversive, could never be achieved without massive political upheaval, bloodshed and revolution. And yet, within 99 years, 1918, we had uncontroversially manhood suffrage and the first big step towards female suffrage, which was completed 10 years later. So democracy is, it's never the it's not always going to be the successful solution in the short term, but in the long term, a democracy can make all sorts of things possible. And we now have, we have our own troubles with democracy, as we well know in this particular period. But nonetheless, I think people need to have faith that there are democratic solutions to all things. Without democracy, we probably won't be successful, but with democracy, we certainly can be. And democracy can always be deepened and extended and will continue to change and developed. I think that's the lesson of Peterloo. Just stick at it. That was Robert Paul. Robert's book, Peterloo, The English Uprising, is available now, published by Oxford University Press. For more podcasts and articles on Peterloo, including one with the film director Mike Lee, head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when Babita Sharma will be discussing what corner shops can tell us about the experience of immigrants in post-war Britain. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.